Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Christian Horde, and we have David Peisner on the phone. We're going to be talking about the life and music of Lil Peep. Lil Peep died in 2017, overdosed just after his 21st birthday. And we have a recent story in the new issue of Rolling Stone magazine and online, the tragedy and torment of Lil Peep that David Peisner wrote and reported over the last four months and even a little bit before that, in the year before that, made, made his first kind of gestures towards reporting it. And it's a in-depth piece about just what happened to a guy, as we say in the subhead. He could have been his generation's Kurt Cobain. Might not have been, but he could have been. He was on the way in some ways, and he died so young. This is a guy who kind of combined emo and hip-hop in a way that a bunch of people are doing it, but he could have been kind of like the superstar figurehead of that idea of that scene. And uh, we can hear Beamer Boy by Lil Peep just to give you a sense of one of the ways he could sound during his life. So we were kind of going over how to describe his music. You know, one way Christian was saying was comparing them to a specific set of brothers from an earlier era, right? Yeah, my first and only Rolling Stone cover story was on Good Charlotte. He does sound like one of the Madden brothers. Definitely picked up a lot of vocal cues from emo, but one of the most interesting things to me about Peep's music is it's not just sort of genre blending uh, or genre mashing or any of those cliches. It's just sort of more like genre ignoring. There yeah. was there was something just sort of intuitive and effortless about kind of mixing up hip hop and emo and alt rock and southern hip-hop in some cases you know it was just like his a generational thing for him i don't think he had any interest or even awareness of genre boundaries so there was something kind of intuitive about the way he mixed up things but yeah the vocals very kind of emo but also with hip-hop phrasing i mean the, the more you listen the, the more they become i think kind of interesting in particular to people it's some kind of middle ground between future and fallout boy who is also a big fan of and he loved my chemical romance he also tagged all of his songs on soundcloud as alternative rock which is kind of a big tell it does make you wonder this might be a guy who another generation might have been just a pure rock guy, but that's an unlikely thing to end up being in, in this decade. David, you learned so much about Peep as a person. What did you get a sense of as far as his influences musically and where this sound and approach came from? Well, yeah. I mean, I think Christian kind of hit it on the head with this sort of idea that it wasn't this sort of conscious mixing of influences or this conscious mixing of genres. It was really just the idea that it's all music. It's all sort of pop in the kind of big P pop kind of work sense of it and the idea that you know he could be into Blink 182 and Future was not like unusual for a 19 20 year old kid growing up in the suburbs suburbs of New York in this case but you know he had an older brother who really turned him on to a lot of punk rock things like No Effects and Blink 182 who obviously I just mentioned and yeah hip hop which of course inescapable I suppose you know everything from Future and Little Yachty and things like that this stuff all just kind of mashed up and I I think what's really amazing is that he started putting out music, posting it to SoundCloud in 2015, and it's really all there from the first song. I mean, it's not like he was figuring it out for a while. I mean, the songs on, you know, his first mixtape, which is called Little Peep Part One, it's, you know, there's stuff on there that's just undeniable. I mean, it, it, it all just came out of him right there, ready to go. And before we get into his life story, maybe we can take a step back and explain why are we saying he could have been his generation's Kurt Cobain? What makes us say that? Obviously, you didn't write the subhead, but that idea is in your story. And it's a thing people say. He even had a song called Cobain. He was obsessed with Kurt Cobain. But what makes us think that he was? Was destined destined 
to be an important artist, uh, David? I think a lot of that is, some of it's certainly, you know, in the music, but there's a lot of it that's beyond music. You know, the fact is, he was a really good-looking kid. Yeah. Um, he was very, I guess, marketable, for a lack of a better word. And he did seem to be, and I think this is maybe the most important thing, kind of tapping into something that was going on all around him with kids his age, teenagers, people in their early 20s. There was this sort of, I don't know, nihilism almost? Sure. This sense that the world wasn't for them, wasn't for him, and he didn't fit in. And I think those kind of themes obviously arc back to Nirvana and things like that. And the fact that he obviously loved Nirvana himself is going to make that comparison more obvious. And I think that, look, people will take exception anytime you're comparing something to Nirvana. or I think they'll take exception from both sides of it. But these are kind of our guideposts, and these are the ways that we can kind of try and understand what's going on now is obviously by looking at, you know, what's gone on in the past. For sure. And as you say in the story, what happened to Peep is both a very old story and a very new story. And there's aspects of it that are just unique to this moment, the instantaneous nature of the fame, the sort of unmediated nature of it. But the idea of that he, you know, went out on the bus with his bros and things got out of control is a very old rock and roll story. But the other thing is that he himself had huge ambitions also sometimes thwarted those ambitions and doubted them, which was also very Kurt Cobain-esque. And I also wonder whether someone like Post Malone, the success that he's seeing is a little bit of, could have been a little bit of of peeps. I always wonder that. I mean, it's just that that happens. Someone falls down, falls back, dies, and then opens up a spot and someone else kind of slams into that slot. And there's a lot of similarities there, frankly, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. I think you're definitely onto something there. And I do think, I mean, this is, again, kind of another like old rock and roll story, which is that pull between I want to be a big star and, you know, I don't like the things that come with stardom and I don't want to leave my friends behind, but there's the money and the fame right over there. And I think what does make it unique is all of this stuff was happening kind of immediately to him. With Kurt Cobain, there was an album before, there was a buildup, there was years that were going by. I mean, it kind of all happened right away for Peep. And I think when you throw social media in there, it's very difficult to process all that stuff in real time. And it certainly doesn't get easier to process all that stuff in real time when you're under the influence of a huge amount of pharmaceuticals. So. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty crazy. Let's take a step back and explain who he was, where he grew up, how he became who he became, if you can, David. He grew up in Long Beach, which is, you know, a town on the south shore of Long Island. His mom is a school teacher. She was, she's a Harvard degree. In fact, both of his parents have Harvard degrees. So, you know, education was a big part of their background, but he did not fit in in school in Long Beach, uh, you know, as is often the story. He felt like an outcast. And eventually he dropped out during his senior year. He did eventually graduate doing an online course, I think it was. But he had sort of been drifting towards music and towards kind of skateboarding culture and things like that. And, you know, I guess he was probably just 18 when he first started posting songs to SoundCloud. So that would have been like 2015. And, um, and somewhere in there, he got his first face tattoo, which was like a little heart on his face. The idea was, and in case anyone's wondering whether kids do this without realizing what it means, he, <laughs> the idea was that he then he couldn't 
didn't get a job. <laughs> it was deliberate, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was commitment. It was like a show of commitment. I'm going to take the path less traveled because I've got a, now got a tattoo on my face. I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm not going to be an accountant. It's commitment. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he was 14 or 15 when he got his first tattoo at all, although it's it, slightly, you know, weird act of rebellion in that, you know, he got a tattoo of his mom's initials and her birthday because he was worried that his mom would be upset at him for getting a tattoo. And, and he was a mama's boy through his entire sort of short life. He was very, very close to his mom. And, you know, they were always in close contact. And part of reporting this was kind of coming to understand that relationship a little bit. And it was uh, another old story, like his parents got a divorce. He was very affected by the divorce. All that, again, eternal recurrence of that particular story, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, his parents' relationship fell apart. It certainly had an influence on him. His own relationship with his father fell apart completely after the divorce. I think that, you know, he had anxiety and depression. I think some of that was in him regardless of the circumstances in his life. And so by the time he was in high school, by the time he was certainly leaving high school, I mean, he was already self-medicating with weed and with Xanax and things like that. And so that was the world that he was kind of walking into. At the same time, he was hiding the Xanax apparently from his mom and all she knew about was the weed. But otherwise, the closeness with the mom does strike me as a very Gen Z type of thing. If you're looking for modern elements of this story, that would be it. His mom <laughs> told us that, you know, she hates American capitalism and stuff. She likes no effects. Like, it's just a very different kind of thing. It isn't like, hey, F you, mom, look at my punk rock. It's nothing like that. She was totally down with it. It's just an interesting twist. It just shows how some things do change, how some aspects of the standard story just change with generations. But yeah, so then what happened? Yeah, so he moved out to California. He actually spent a little bit of time in Denver, but basically after kind of shuttling back and forth between Long Beach and L.A., he kind of landed in L.A. and he, he briefly hooked up with a rap crew called Schema Posse and then kind of fell in with this other group called Goth Boy Click or GBC. You know, at the time he's like living in, he was living in basically a squat on Skid Row. The picture that sort of was conjured for me from the people I talked to about this place was, was just there were people lying all over the place. Some of them were musicians. Some of them were just drug addicts. It was a pretty grimy scene. You know, but that's kind of where things started taking off for him. I mean, he hooked up with these guys from Golf Boy Click and became what ended up being the final member of this group, which had about 10 members. And they're, you know, they had a lot of the same influences as he did. And then they became some of his closest friends. Horsehead was one of them, right? There were yep. just these. Yeah, like Horsehead and Little Tracy and Fishnark and Wicca Phase Springs Eternal. I mean, it, you know, each name seems to have a backstory worth telling in and of themselves. Most of them had been doing it a little bit longer than him. They had been kind of at it maybe just a year or two longer than him. But they they were about the same age. Yeah, so we're going to play, probably for the first time on Sirius XM, any station, we're going to play some Horsehead music. Last Night in L.A. by Horsehead. Let's hit it. So yeah, very much in the vein. And you know, it's just sometimes it's like Eminem and D12, like some of them might have been doing similar things, but it's often clear who the breakout star is. But yeah, sorry, keep going, David. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when he joined the group, he already had kind of more, I guess, underground buzz than they did. You know, he kind of admired them, liked their music, but it was clear like he was kind of the guy already back then, at least for people who were kind of paying attention on that micro level. I mean, people could just see, I mean, he had that charisma. He had that kind of star power. And there is a little bit of an intangible that's sometimes hard to define. But within that circle, they knew that this was the guy who could put them all on. And so started doing shows, things like that. But it all kind of came 
pretty quickly. And at this point, already people are starting to get interest from the mainstream music industry. It was still an underground phenomenon, but he had a meeting with this company called First Access Entertainment. He then hooked up with a guy named Chase Ortega, who was a guy who had been in punk bands, but now he's running a merch company. Uh, Chase became his manager, then he signed with First Access, and First Access is this, I guess they're a record company. But they are kind of, you know, a very contemporary 360 kind of company where they do a bit of everything. You know, so he signed a deal with them. Was he doing modeling as well? Did I make that up? Is that true? No, no, that's a, it became yeah. a thing. I mean, that yeah. came through First Access. I mean, part of their thing was they were going to promote his brand. They were going to turn him into a modern star. He did, like, walked in fashion shows for Fashion Week, I guess, in Milan and in Paris. And that was something that I, I believe came through uh, First Access. I mean, there's a Pitchfork interview that he did fairly early on, in early 2017, where he, he talks about kind of getting his name out there. It's a weird, actually fascinating mix. It's an interview with uh, Stephen J. Horowitz, and it's a really interesting interview, and it's a really fascinating mix of, again, like sort of a, a Gen X-y, like, I don't care, I'm nihilistic, blah, 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 with this Gen Z, like, I'm out to get my money, like, I got to build my brand. And it's like a fascinating sort of back and forth pull between that because he talks about his persona he talks about all kinds of stuff that pulls away from the pure sincerity of the thing and then he also talks about there's a song called omfg Mm -hmm. on hellboy where he talks about wanting to kill himself you know and he says yeah it is serious i suffer from depression some days i wake up and i'm like fuck i wish i didn't wake up yeah and i think all of that stuff and i think this can sometimes be hard for people to understand but i think it was all genuine and it's all real there is a quote in the story that i wrote from Fishnark where he talks about you know that he had all of these sides to him I and mean, his mom told me peep's mom told me that he just wanted to get his music out there and not have to work for somebody else and do things he didn't want to do. And that was like his goal when he first got into music. And less than a year later, he's meeting with First Access and Sarah Stennett, who's the CEO of First Access, what she told me is that what his goal was then, less than 12 months later, was I want to be the biggest star in the world and play stadiums. Mm. And I think there's a way that both of those things still existed in him up until the day he died. He wanted to be real and be underground and, and be all of those things. And he wanted that stardom and he wanted, and you know, and I think that that was some of the things that were sort of pulling him apart towards the end. And I was going to ask Christian, we ended up doing this huge sort of posthumous story that uh, David Peisner wrote. And it is a little bit extra sad because parts of it feel like the cover story he might have gotten in a couple years had he not died. You know, and it's frankly not an artist we covered much before he died because he hadn't quite reached the level he was going to reach. So there's something weird and sad about this and unusual for us. Yeah, I felt a real sense of sadness working on this story. The more I got to know him and know him through his mom, I mean, he was, I think, a fascinating character and I think someone who was genuinely in pain and it genuinely made me sad that we didn't get to do, you know, a bigger feature with him living or a cover story. And I think it's quite reasonable to think we would have. I mean, he was on his way up, you you know, the one album that came out, the proper album that came out when he was still alive, I think was it hit number 38 on the charts, which isn't a smash, but it was a good first start. The first posthumous album, Come Over When You're Sober Part 2, it, it hit number four. And, you know, I think Pete Wentz in the story, Pete Wentz of uh, Fall Out Boy said he was an album away from Critical Mass. So, yeah, I think it was headed that way. And, you know, it's amazing to me to look at all the music he put out and then remember he hadn't even turned 21 when, when he put all of that out because he turned 21 just before he died. But yeah, a lot of people think he was headed for stardom and I think so too, the more I listen. 
I definitely hear in certain of his music like an immaturity and an unrealized potential. And then I remind myself like this might have all been his juvenilia. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know what he would have done post 21. That's the crux of the whole thing. It's just this promise thwarted. But David, one of the things you were getting into the whole thing with uh, Goth Boy Click, where he was hanging out with these dudes. And in your story, you said that uh, he had almost a physical need to be around people. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, this was just something that was said to me by several people that I had interviewed, that he was this weird mix of, you know, in some ways he was kind of introverted and shy, but he always wanted to be around people. He did not like being by himself. After he left that squad on Skid Row, he moved into a, his own house. You know, this was sort of, he needed to get someplace that was safe, that wasn't full of people who were, you know, doing drugs and calling drug dealers at three in the morning. And, um, and so he moved into this house in Echo Park, in, you know, in L.A., and almost immediately, all of those same people who were at that Skid Row squat just kind of gravitated towards him. And it wasn't that, I mean, it's a combination of people taking advantage of his hospitality, but also he wanted them around for the most part. You know, he wanted people around him. And, and this goes, you know, to the final tour when he was on that tour bus, he wanted his friends around him. You know, I think I can only speculate sort of, it may have given him extra confidence or maybe even put a buffer between him and parts of the world he didn't want to deal with. But he definitely did. And flip side of that is that people really wanted to be around him. I mean, he was a charismatic guy. I think sometimes when you, especially if you listen to his music, you would get this sense that he was sort of miserable and depressed. And I'm not discounting his very real depression, but most of the people I talked to, he was funny. He was a fun guy to be around. And so, you know, he had people around him most of the time, if not all the time. The fact that he signed sort of a solo deal, at least one person in your story says, and I agree with that, it does kind of make it seem like he knew that as much as he was a member of this clique, he also was not going to be with them forever. I think that's a reasonable interpretation. Like maybe he wanted to help them as much as he could. He knew he was the star, I think. Well, yeah, that's definitely a question mark. I think as I put it in the story, like I don't think he really knew what his future was with regards to Goth Boy Click. He said all sorts of different things to all sorts of different people, kind of all at the same time. I mean, he would say that he was going to stay with them and he wanted to put them on his next tour and they were always going to be a part of his music and this and that. And then he would tell people that, no, 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 I'm leaving the group. And, you know, I think both were true. At different times, I mean, I think they probably felt true when he said them, and I don't think he really knew. And I mean, you know, certainly you can look at the history of just like most people don't stay with the crew that they were when they were 20. And I just, this isn't even just music. I mean, we all grow and kind of outgrow our friends from that era. And I think it's certainly safe to assume that he probably would have at some point too. But you like know, his, his, his quickly, I guess. Yeah, his breakthrough EP was Hellboy, which I enjoy. And a lot of that stuff was produced by members of, of Goth by a Click, which shows that, you know, it's not like these guys were hangers on. They were actually helping make the music. And I think it's, it's certainly interesting what the production consisted of, which was often sampling usually fairly obscure guitar rock stuff, whether sometimes it's like a post-rock instrumental thing, sometimes it's indie rock. Occasionally, I think there might have been a Radiohead sample, but it's a, an interesting approach. I think it, it all kind of was leading towards like, hey, well, maybe you should like get people to actually play guitar for you, but that's another story. But uh, let's hear Fucked Up, which was produced again by our friend Horsehead, but features a little peep on actual vocals. We can do whatever that we want to do. So you start to understand why people were hearing real potential there, just like sort of an insanely commercial mashup of genres there. And, and 
a crassness that only someone young would sort of dare to do to just take the most it's like the chorus of a blink song or of a good charlotte song is the verse then the actual chorus is something even more simple and hooky so it's just like hooks upon hooks in an almost nursery rhyme way and the, the lyrics are about sex it's really for the kids like it's it's just it was for the children no doubt he wasn't going to be a critic's favorite he was either going to be blasting out of every like suv heading to a mall in america or not and it seems like he was so where did it go from Hellboy, David? Well, that would have been when he really started working with First Access. And so, and I think just to pick up on something you were just saying, I mean, I think the thing that's so immediate to me about his music is he really had a gift for crafting a hook, as you said, like the melody in a way that that I don't think many of the other people, not just in golf boy click, who are sort of working in the same world could do. I mean, it, it just seems to come naturally to him. But yeah, after Hellboy, he started working on Come Over When You're Sober Part 1. Which was essentially and, his major label debut. Right. I've sort of gone back and listened to him, and, and it is cleaner, it is a bit brighter sounding than the earlier mixtapes. But there is a consistency, certainly with Come Over When You're Sober Part 1. It's not all of a sudden a completely different artist. It's cleaner production, things like that. And it did become that song, Awful Things, became a big, uh, I guess, hit for him. And, you know, The Bright Side, Save That Shit, all of those became, within his world, kind of big songs for him. Let's hear Awful Things for a moment. Yeah, again, not... Not hard to, to see why people had expectations for this stuff. But let's get to maybe the, the final tour. How did all that start? So he was scheduled to go on this tour. There's a European leg and a North American leg, and the European leg would have started in September of 2017. The European leg went relatively smoothly, you know, as smooth as any tour is going to go when you've got a bunch of young dudes doing a lot of drugs, but still pretty smoothly. And then the North American tour, they decided to get a tour bus, which was a first. They had been touring in kind of sprinter vans before that. The North American tour was started in October of 2017. They got a tour bus and kind of everyone came. Most of the GBC guys were on the tour. Uh, he had a couple of other friends, this guy Bexy, who is a British artist who had done opening slots on the European tour, and he came to do the American dates. And, you know, as it had been described to me, like the tour bus itself, I think he became a little bit trapped on it. I mean, it's hard to overstate the kind of obsessive nature of the way fans saw him. When he stepped outside, I mean, he was the Beatles in 1964. I mean, people were rushing him. You know, they wanted to get close to him. They wanted to give him drugs. They wanted to tell him their story about their own depression, their own anxiety. And this can be obviously incredibly overwhelming for anyone, not the least. Now, a guy who at this time is just still 20 years old. And super uh, distinctive looking, it occurs to me. Like, it's pretty hard to hide yourself when you were a little peep. He was also very tall. It's just a a problem. Yeah, 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 he was very hard to hide. And so gradually as this tour went on, I mean, not even gradually, I think pretty quickly, he just started staying in the bus. Like he wouldn't get off. The tour would go from Seattle to Portland to, you know, LA or whatever. And each stop, he would mostly just stay on the bus. And there's not much to do on a tour bus, especially when you're traveling and, you know, in the middle of the night besides drugs, you know. And video games, I guess you, you said, yeah. Yes, drinking drugs, video games. And so that kind of, you know, became the tour. 
and I think you said he'd wake up 30 minutes before the show and then play the show and then stay up all night on the bus, which could be really psychologically isolating. You start to understand how someone could get into a pretty fucked up frame of mind living like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was definitely his schedule. He would maybe wake up in the afternoon, go back to sleep, wake up before the show. But most of his main hours of being awake were from whenever the show ended to 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. when he would finally crash. And without getting into where they were coming from already, but what kind of drugs are we talking about here? Xanax is obviously a big kind of part of this scene, I guess. And so Xanax was a big part of it. And weed was always around. But beyond that, there was a lot. There were opiates, oxycodone, Percocets. There was cocaine. And then specific to this bus and to this tour, which like kind of struck me because it wasn't just a, a drug that I'd heard about a lot, was ketamine. Yeah. Was sort of this tranquilizer, I guess. Or, but ketamine was used a lot on this tour bus. It's a people, it's of K-hole fame would be ketamine, yeah. if that rings any bells for people. Yeah. It seems like a little old school. I hadn't heard about ketamine in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Same with me. But it was a big deal on this bus. And I don't know if it was the most used, but it was certainly one of the most talked about. You have a bunch of young dudes just... <laughs> seemingly slipping a, a touch out of control and perhaps him the most. And the story ended in some ways a predictable way. You know, I think we'll talk about basically his final day. We were talking about uh, Lil Peep's kind of the final tour, which was pretty drugged out. And uh, David, you talked to a teenage fan who actually spent some of that day with him, right? Yeah, yeah. This is a kid named Nick Dowd. And uh, he was, I guess, essentially one of the two last people to see uh, Peep alive, or at least one of the last two to see him conscious. Yeah, he was in the back of the bus with Peep. They were smoking dabs, which I have to say, I did not know what that was before I did this story. Mm. It's basically kind of marijuana. It's just a different way to smoke like high-potency marijuana. But anyway, so they were in the back of the bus. And how did these fans get there? Well, so <laughs> they had come to the show in Tucson and Peep did step off the bus there and talked to a bunch of fans and they came up to him and he invited them to come to the back of the bus with them to smoke, which was an unusual thing. It wasn't something that happened in every town. Like I said before, he didn't really get off the bus in a lot of towns except to just come out and play the show. But they invited him onto the bus. They were on the bus with them for maybe 30 or 40 minutes. And while they were in the back room with them, he nodded off and never woke up again. That's uh, extremely dark. You're talking about the tour itself, but what led up to the immediate uh, kind of beforehand of that day? The night before, they had been in El Paso, and uh, Pete was actually kind of had a bit of a tantrum, you know, which was maybe a little bit out of character, but maybe becoming a slightly more in character, but he didn't want to play the venue. The venue seemed too small. They couldn't get the stage set in there. And so he had basically decided, forget it, I'm not playing. That's it. And he actually videoed himself taking a bunch of Xanax backstage at this venue in El Paso. And by a strange confluence of things, he ended up having to play the show. And it went fine, but he had taken a bunch of Xanax that night. And he had posted some pretty kind of disturbing things to his Instagram, just kind of really pained lamentations of like how he felt like he was being pulled in several different directions by all these different forces in his life. And he really just sort of seemed not in a great place. Did his family have any idea that he was descending in any way? Well, his mom actually talked to him that night in El Paso, and she was the one who told me, I think her quote is in the story about talking to him and how he would just didn't want to do the show and all that. So yeah, they had an idea that he wasn't happy, but again, keep in mind that he had been struggling with anxiety and depression since he was a teenager. 
So this wasn't necessarily something that would have been a huge red flag at that point. To be honest, the next day he woke up late, you know, as usual, sort of probably about one or two o'clock and went out of the bus at about three and met these fans. And according to Nick Dowd, uh, this teenage fan, he seemed to be in a great mood. And there is a quote in the story, basically him saying that, that it's a good day, that things are going well. Uh, He was really kind of happy. It was a nice sunny day in Tucson and things were going well, which only sort of adds to the kind of tragic element of it being his last day. And his mom is now kind of by necessity has taken over the estate and executive produced his posthumous album and there's a new documentary coming out that she also had something to do with. So there's this weird thing where it's just like Tupac's mom or something or or Jimi Hendrix's family or whatever where she's in this position of managing this uh, late artist in whom people are still interested. It's an odd thing. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, she said to me and the quote is in the story that she's just a naive school teacher and she didn't really get into the music business by choice. And while that is true, she's also sharp. She knows what she wants, and she has an idea of what she thinks her son would have wanted. But a lot of people have an idea of what they think her son would have wanted. First Access, the company that he was signed with, they're the kind of driving force behind most of his posthumous career. I mean, they put together or helped put together his uh, first posthumous album, Come Over When You're Sober, Part 2. And it was actually Sarah Stennett's husband, who's a songwriter himself and a producer himself, who worked on that album with this producer named Smokasack, who was somebody who worked very closely with Peep and was a, a key collaborator for him. Was there, but, you know, is, they, is there a lot more posthumous stuff? Is there a lot more music that he didn't release? Well, I think that kind of depends on your definition of what there is. I mean, I get the feeling there's lots of vocals that he did out there, but it's different than, like, say, a band or a singer-songwriter who had an album or a bunch of songs that just haven't come out yet. He would record vocals all the time, and, you know, a lot of the posthumous stuff, I mean, especially the stuff that's come out more recently, like the collaboration with Tentacion and the collaboration with Fall Out Boy and McConan. I mean, that stuff is probably not the phrase that the record company used, but it's kind of Frankenstein together. I sure, mean, it's, it's from little bits yeah i was gonna ask christian i mean we talked about this being an old story an old rock and roll story in some ways but one of the things i think you were helping david get into the story during the edit was this idea of what makes it unique in this era and what was your sense of that and pete wentz was one of the people who really had great things to say about that as well Yeah, I mean, you know, it is sort of an old classic rock and roll story in that it was a bunch of young dudes starting to get famous on a bus with a lot of drugs, but there were also modern pressures at play. I think part of Peep's success is that he lived his life on Instagram. He had an extremely open, sort of drug-laden Instagram. The night before he died, he was pouring his feelings out in an Instagram caption. I mean, I don't know what that's like. It maybe isn't an incredibly healthy way to live. Like I've said to you, the drugs in this story made me feel old. I mean, it's been 10 years or so since I've been out on the road with bands and rappers and other artists regularly, and it's a new mix of drugs out there. And plus, this was instant fame. He didn't have that sort of A&R development phase. I mean, he started recording and started putting out songs and was fairly famous by the time he was 1920. It's not unheard of in the past, but it's more unique to this moment. And so, yeah, there are these modern pressures that he was dealing with and I think got to him. And, and Pete Wentz, you know, he kind of hit it on the head in his quote. He was talking about the music community needing to reach out to people who are struggling. And, you know, I think he has a good point. As I was saying at the beginning, there's something to the unmediated nature of all this where if you can post directly to fans, even your music, SoundCloud is just, you just hit upload and there it is. And you can talk to them through Instagram and stuff. There's maybe a rawness of the emotional experience 
exchange with fans and also just a feeling of the roller coaster not having enough cushions on it. The virtue of having like a big label and reaching people through MTV like you used to, it just provided sort of a buffer and slowed things down. It's You can't bring that back, but it does start to explain how things could slip out of control. It's just a different world. So, But the music is definitely worth uh, seeking out. It does give a glimpse of like a future of pop music. You know, I, I think that people are still pushing in that direction and there's stuff like, I mean, the Juice World is definitely very similar, though he's coming to it sort of more from the hip hop side, but embracing emo stuff. But there's obvious similarities, as I said, Post Malone, Uzi Vert, there's plenty of stuff that's in the same vein, but Lil Peep is worth seeking out. But this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. I had Dave Pizer on the phone. Thanks very much to him and Christian Horton in the studio. And we'll be back next week here on Sirius XM Volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. And as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.